Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 146 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 13th of March 2016, entitled The Genesis Account Part 23. And the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. All right, let me invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. We're going to take our reading from chapter 6, but then we're going to back up. We're really coming in our series on the Genesis account. We've been going, trying to bring all of these things together that we've been looking at so much here. Let's take our scripture reading, and then we'll pick up from there. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, I do invite you to stand to give honor and glory to the precious and holy Word of God as we read it. Genesis 6 and 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. For that, he is also, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Father, we do thank you again that we have your word before us. We pray now that as we look here this morning, Lord, that you would meet with us, speak to us, and we give you all the praise and honor in Christ's name. Amen. I think that I've said before that one of the amazing things about God's word is that it is fathomless. It is inexhaustible. And of course, the thing that even in in looking at a simple thought like we have been looking at in our Genesis account, which is part of our whole series on contending for the faith. I think we're up to to, uh, number 23 on the Genesis account. We've tried to pull these things together, and we have looked there thus far at the authority of God's Word, at the assertion of God's existence, at the absoluteness of God's creation, the advancement of the human race, the accountability of mankind, the administration of home life, the acuteness of man's fall, the abolishment of Satan, the atonement for sin, the acceptance of offerings to God. And the amazing thing is this is just in the first few chapters and none of these matters have we looked at in great depth. We have simply looked at the foundation that is laid right here in the book of Genesis. We have many today that though they would claim to be fundamental in their doctrines, evangelical in their their persuasions, and yet they would try to make the book of Genesis something other than literal. We've asked many times the question that the psalmist himself asked, When he asks, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? We moved on to one other which we had begun and which we want to just simply remind you of a few things as we move on, and that is the affirmation of God's judgment. The act of judging, the act of evaluating something for for what what it is, being able to come to a truly authoritative decision based on the actual evidence. You see, we pass judgments every day of our lives on all kinds of things. 
You know, it might be on something as trivial as a, a sporting event or a beauty contest. It might be some talent show as to who's doing the best job. It might be as to what you're going to have for dinner, what's good and what's not good. <laughs> you may pass judgment on what you're going to wear because this is going to look good and that's not, or this is going to go with that. Some things, but we pass judgment on things day in and day out. And of course, many are much more serious. In law, it speaks of a formal decision that is reached either by a court or a presiding judge that is sitting over this something who has the authority to make that judgment. He has the authority to make a ruling concerning the matter for the evidence that's brought before him. It can be positive or it can be negative. We find that uh, it can, again, it can be about something that is as mundane as where the line should be between these two houses that the judge has to decide uh, who's going to get Uncle Joe's watch because they're contesting the, the will that he left behind. It could be something as serious as whether this person committed murder or some terrible crime against someone else. Why do we get nervous about judgments a lot of times? Normally it's because we fear the negative judgments. It's usually because there's some kind of guilt involved. You see, if you're going before the judge and you know with absolute certainty that you are innocent, that you don't have anything to worry about, that you don't have to hide, and you know that the evidence is rock solid, then you're probably going to go with an anticipation of being grateful that he's going to clear your name. You don't want people thinking that you've done something that you haven't. But if you are guilty and you think that you maybe have built a case to rationalize what you've done, the truth is, is that usually the fear comes either because of guilt or doubt. Well, I want to say in the very beginning that as we think about this whole matter of judgment, as a child of God, you have nothing to fear to stand before a righteous and a holy judge if when you're standing before that judge, you have absolute total confidence of the evidence that is there, and the evidence that is there is because you're standing there in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of who you are or what you've done. It's a matter of who he is and what he has done because he's the one that's standing in your place. You have nothing to fear in all the world. This is why that Christians don't have to fear what's beyond the grave. We were kidding back there earlier about our bodies getting older, more forgetful and all these things, but praise God, we know we've got a new body that's on order and it's waiting and it will be ours. There's no question about it. We know that as Christians that we don't necessarily go around looking to finish things off today, but we don't have any fear if God chooses to take us today. There's a big difference. You know, we find that even in Scripture, the Apostle Paul had that battle, that struggle between himself. There's so many things that we have already looked at in this matter of judgment, and I don't want to try to go back and repeat all of those things this morning. But it's God's judgment that the foundation is laid here in the book of Genesis. And the truth is, is that we know that in ourselves before God we all stand guilty, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none, no, not one, that is righteous. So within ourselves we would have much to fear. But of course, in Christ, we sing that the words of that song, I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, I am fathered by the true and living God. So what I want you to grasp and understand is that also 
Judgment is something that must be passed. But the only way that judgment can be passed right is when all the evidence is there. I made the statement a number of times that so many times we make judgments that we don't have all the evidence. Or part of what we think that we have is not really all that we think that it is. We have impartial evidence. We have impartial truths. Judgment is something that it's amazing how that our views and our ideas on it can change. If I were, I think I used the illustration before, that if I were to take any one of you here in this congregation, and if I were to ask you about a person that was near and dear to you, whoever is closest to you in all this world, and if somebody came in and bought, brought real grievous harm to them, or maybe even took their lives from them or whatever, then yes, even though that you might be forgiving, we would hope that by God's grace we could, we would not find it difficult to understand that person being judged in a court of law and found guilty for the crime that they committed. But we have to realize that even our best courts of law make mistakes. The foundation is laid here. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The greatest confidence that we can have is that we're talking about God's judgment. No man will set in judgment over any of you. It is God, and we will all be. They're one of the two judgments, and we looked at all those things, and as a child of God, if you are a born-again believer, you'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. There won't be anybody there lost. People aren't being judged for whether they're, where they're going to spend eternity. As a matter of fact, if I've got it figured out as well as I think that I do, I believe that by the time that we're sitting at the Bema seat, we're already in heaven while the tribulation is taking place down here on earth. We've already arrived there. But he says we will be judged for the things done in the body, both good and bad. It's a time of us being rewarded for our faithfulness to the Lord. It's not a time that you can possibly be found guilty of sin. It can't be. There won't be any sin there. But of course, if you're not in Christ and you're at the great white throne of judgment, then I assure you that if you're standing before the judge on that day, there is no hope. It's too late. Only the guilty will be there. I want us to affirm God's judgment. You know, when we go into even a court of law that's going to take judgment down here, we raise our hand and we say one of two things. Either I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or I affirm that everything that I'm about to give is the truth. So that's why we're talking about the affirmation of God's judgment. I believe that's what we find. You see, on the one hand... When something is judged positive or negative, good or bad, true or false, the best or the worst, the guilty or the innocent, in order to be judged, there have to always be at least two options. You can't pass judgment on anything if there is no option for it to be, if there's not being judged against anything. And if it's a positive judgment, then there's going to be some kind of positive reward, even if it's just recognition for being the best. On the other hand, if it is punitive, then it means it deserves some kind of reprisal or discipline or punishment because that uh, it's not what it ought to be. You see, the very first judgment, and we won't go back through all of these verses because we have been there, but in Genesis chapter 1, as we made our way through there, we find that the very first judgment that we see being passed is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. We didn't get very far. And God saw the light that it was what? Good. It was good. We find that that was the first time that God passed judgment on something. After he created the light, he judged it and said that it was good. And if you follow through, the same thing on days 3, days 4, days 5, days 6, 
till we get to verse 31, it's actually when he passes that final judgment that he adds a little something to it. He says, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. We looked at all this. We've talked about all of these things. It's extremely too important that when God passed his righteous judgment, the only righteous judge on all of creation, on everything that he had created, on everything that he had done, it was a positive judgment. It was exceedingly good. There was nothing wrong with it. There was no imperfections found in it. And of course, we don't go very far then until we find that there's this thing called punitive judgment. And as we look through a number of things, we find that it was there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that we see that the first thing that arrives there is this very antithesis. It couldn't be more opposite. It couldn't be more contrary to the goodness of God. It's that thing called sin, S-I-N. There's nothing that could be at more odds with God's goodness, with God's holiness than sin. And that's where we see God's next judgment. The first judgment was a positive judgment, but the second judgment was a punitive judgment. In Genesis chapter 2, Verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. How could God be more clear? How could he be more explicit? He gave man everything, the instructions. He had everything before him. He had one prohibition. We might think, you know, how could Adam be so stupid? I mean, God told him, Adam, everything there is yours. There's one thing that you can't have. If you take from this tree, you will surely die. Only thing, can you imagine? The only thing in all the world that could bring harm, that could bring death, that could damage God's creation was this one thing. And yet, Adam made the wrong choice. <laughs> Even though he knew what God had told him would happen if he did. It really shouldn't surprise us that much. <laughs> when we look at all that God has told us, and yet how well that we obey it. <laughs> I mean, he warns us all through the Scripture because he wants what's best for us. He wants you to be happier than you can even begin to imagine happiness. As a matter of fact, he talks about a joy that is absolutely unspeakable and full of glory. He talks about a peace that passes all understanding. It doesn't even make sense. God wants it for you. But he's given us many, many warnings, just as he did Adam. If you do this, this is going to happen. And yet, we quoted that verse earlier. <laughs> All have sinned. Every one of us. It's an error in us, that, that sinfulness. We looked at a number of things there as man sinned in the garden in his fall. We looked at God's passing judgment on the serpent, passing judgment on the woman, passing judgment on the man. But we also saw that even when man had done the worst thing that he could do and brought the worst possible conclusion to God's creation that was exceedingly good, he spoiled it. He destroyed it. He brought this upon it. And yet, we see God when he comes to meet man after he's done this. And what is the act that we see of God? Compassion. Compassion. 
He gives the man the covering to cover his nakedness. We find that man didn't deserve God's compassion, but he got God's compassion. May I just remind you that as we see there in the garden, God passing both positive and punitive judgment, that God is still the only one that can pass judgment. You see, we saw the certainty of God's judgment. We saw that the certainty of his judgment is always righteous judgment. We don't know anybody else like that. (laughs) We don't know anything else like that that cannot get it wrong, that knows every detail about it, that knows every detail about us better than we even know about ourselves. God's judgment You don't have to worry about somebody judging you wrong. His judgment is certain, but his judgment is righteous. And his righteous judgment always, always is accompanied by his love and compassion. He is love. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's judgment. We looked, secondly, at Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. After all that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, now they've been expelled from the garden because of their sin. They give birth to these two sons, Cain and Abel. And, of course, we looked at a a number of things about that, but what we find there in all that took place was that with Abel's offering, when it was brought to God, God passed a positive judgment. And because God's judgment was positive, his offering was accepted of the Lord. But Cain's offering was punitive. God's response was that he rejected it. Now, that was the response. There was no other judgment passed on at that time. We talked about this in some details more when we talked about the offerings that were acceptable by God. But judgment was passed on both, one positive, one punitive, one accepted, and one rejected. But, you know, it's interesting because, again, just as we saw God's compassion coming through there in the garden, we find that here in this passage that we also see God's compassion and grace, if you would, showing through to this one because just because Abel's offering was not accepted of God, it said, uh, you know, God said to him, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. What's the next words? And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. God's just passed righteous judgment. Cain gets upset. He doesn't like God's judgment. He gets very angry, the Bible says. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why? Why art thou wroth? Why hast thou countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Look, what are you upset about? You know that if you do what's right, then it's going to be accepted. But if you don't, it's not. You need to be careful. And God gives him warning. He warns him that he needs to adjust his attitude. (laughs) That if he just do what's right, there won't be any further punishment. But Cain, rather than heeding God's warning. We know that he gets angry, he goes out, he murders his brother, and then we see God's punitive judgment coming against him. 
as we read down through verses through 9 through 15. And we've looked at all of that. You see, God tried his best to get Cain to, rec- to look and realize what he was doing and just correct it. God tells us, what is it that we remind ourselves even every time that we come around the Lord's table that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But if we won't judge ourselves, God will judge us and he will chasten those that he loves. We find that I read to you something that I had written and posted. And I just want to remind you of this as we move forward this morning. I said every good or bad thing that happens in our life is not necessarily a reward or a punishment from God. Although I believe strongly in the power and sovereignty of God, I do not believe that he overrides our own personal will and choices in life and that we are some kind of robots just doing what we're programmed to do. In other words, God created you as a human. God has total sovereignty. God can do anything that he wants. But God gives you choices and he holds you accountable for those choices In fact, we've considered the fact that we were given certain responsibilities right from the beginning in which we failed, and it was disobedience and bad choices in regards to those responsibilities that brought about the punitive judgment in the first place, the punitive judgment. You can't have responsibilities and accountability without having consequences of failure. We all make judgments every day of our lives about all kinds of things. We come to conclusions and make decisions based on the information or the evidence that we have. We judge things to be good or bad, right or wrong, acceptable or unacceptable. And we're often making those judgments based on partial, incomplete, or even false information. We can only make judgments based on the information that we have. There's only one person, God, who can make judgments based on having all of the information, all of the time, and it always being accurate. We should be very careful and cautious about passing judgment on each other because sadly, we often get it wrong, probably more times than not. The information we base those judgments on is most often flawed in some way or another, either in the information we have or in how we see it. Our judgments are often made against standards that are themselves flawed. In our courts of law, where judgments are passed on matters from the mundane to the very future life of an individual, we put many checks and balances into place to try to avoid miscarriages of justice, but we still get it wrong sometimes. For those of us that accept God as the originator of life, we accept that in the end, It is his judgment of our lives that matters most and his standard that is the only truly flawless standard. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 describe all of creation in its perfect state before the entrance of sin and death in chapter 3. If we accept the fact that God put us here in his perfect image before we messed it up, in a perfect environment before we messed that up too, then it's his judgment using his standard that really matters. This is the judgment we will all face with our lives at some point. God gave us that life. He sustains that life. And therefore, he is the one that has the right to judge what we do with it. Thank God that there is no possibility of wrong judgment under his jurisdiction. There is no possibility of incomplete or flawed information or evidence and no possibility of it being incorrectly viewed or interpreted. One of the great comforts of humanity is that our loving God is not going around trying to find a reason to punish innocent people, but rather he is looking for the flawed, the imperfect, the guilty sinner to forgive through Jesus Christ. He wants to reward us with a perfect, 
and an eternal life just as he first created it there in the Garden of Eden. So we see the basis, the foundation being laid for these judgments. But then as we move on, we find that in the next chapter, in chapter 5, it is really one of those genealogies. And if we read through that, that genealogy, it is really, it records the genealogy from Adam that we've been looking at all the way up to Noah. We find that it's interesting that this genealogy comes through the line of Seth. Who was Seth? Seth was the replacement that God gave Adam and Eve after Abel was killed. (laughs) He was the replacement for that line to come through, the godly line and the ungodly line. Those are the two primary divisions of people on the earth at that time. The godly line of Seth, known as the Sethites, the godless line of Cain, known as the Cainites. But then as we move to Genesis chapter 6, where we picked up our reading, there in verses 1 and 2, some people look at this, and man, I have, I have seen commentaries on this that make all kind of weird and, and, and off-the-wall statements about what it's talking about. Look at where we've just come from. Look at those that are here. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God, that's the godly line. That's the line of Seth. (laughs) Saw the daughters of men that were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose, the sons of God and the daughters of men, the godly against the worldly, the Seth line against the Cain line. You see, what really begins to happen here. God is giving us a phenomenal insight. If we look at what he's saying to us, he's giving us insight into how that man became so wicked and so sinful that he had to destroy this whole world. He's giving us insight into how man's wickedness began to multiply. It begins to really give new meaning if we listen to him, to the importance of the instructions that God gives us. God's people marrying the godless people. The godly marrying the ungodly. Those that were walking with God marrying those that were walking in the world. You see, the Bible says clearly that that's what began to happen. That's what we see here. Now think about it. The first judgment that God had to bring in the Garden of Eden that brought the curse upon this world and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden was, the root of it was disobedience, disobeying God. The second judgment that was brought about with Cain was brought about with the root of Jealousy that led to murder. (laughs) Disobedience, jealousy, and then this third judgment that we see here, the judgment of the flood was brought by the root of what? Love for the world. Love for the godless, if you would. They began to look and they saw these, these daughters of those that had nothing to do with God. They saw them as fair. They saw them as beauty. They saw that earthly beauty, and they began to take them as their wives. Verse 3 gives us the first insight into God's judgment on his, this sinful condition. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. God warns man. Oh, he is love, and he is compassionate. We can't see any of his judgments without seeing grace there, but there is a limit as to how far and to how long that he will allow man to go. His spirit will not always strive with man. Right here is when the stop clock, the the countdown began. He gave man 120 years before the final judgment would be recognized upon his sinfulness. His days shall be 120 years. God's 
punitive judgment being brought against man. And he would have had every right to just destroy him at that point. But once again, we see that love, that compassion. I'm going to give you 120 years to get this thing right. We find that as God moves on in verse 5, and God saw, verse 4, didn't mean to step, but really, really what we, what we see there in, in, in verse 4 is just an insight into the antediluvian, the antidiluge, the anti, the, before the flood of man. Life was very different. And he's shown here, man, I mean, these people were awesome. They were, they were bigger and they were stronger and they were of such renown and everything before the flood. This earth was very, very different. But he goes on in verse 5 and he said, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You got two lines. God's people, the world's people. Suddenly, those two begin to marry each other. You can't. I've said this time and again, it's not trying to be mean, unloving, uncaring. Can we grasp and understand it is impossible to be one with God and one with the world. The Bible tries to get that across to us over and over and over again. We're just asking for trouble. We're starting down a slope that we'll never be able to pull ourselves back from. The godless and the godly. <laughs> But the godly began to tie themselves with the godless. And this world just became more and more and more wicked. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. <laughs> I mean, wow. God looks upon all of his creation, and he is totally, completely brokenhearted. He loves us so much. He's given us everything that we need. He's created us in perfection to be eternal beings. We've chose sin. We begin to murder one another and now we just begin to mix ourselves with the world. And God looks and says, what have I done? And he declares very specifically. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God declares that his creation has gone too far. <laughs> but notice in the next verses, what's the next words in your Bible? But Noah found what? Grace. <laughs> the world. We look around and we talk about this, the world. Yes. It's a wicked place. I mean, we can't even imagine what makes people do the things they do a lot of times. But amidst this wicked world that becomes so wicked that God was going to need to wipe it out. <laughs> Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and a perfect in his generation. What's it say? And Noah did what? He walked with God. He walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <laughs> you see, I want you to remember something. God's grace is not just some intangible thing out there. God's grace is real and it is personal. It's always personal. God's grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. In a day of such wickedness that you can't... Brother Mohan, we were talking earlier about sometimes 
You can really get the feeling like you're just an island all alone in the midst of a world of wickedness. It is just incomprehensible, Satan and all the destruction and all that he's doing to people's lives all around us. And we can sometimes just feel so alone in a day of wickedness like you've never seen. In a day when Noah really was an island, we find that he walked uprightly with God. He chose to walk with God when there was nobody else to walk with him. And in the midst of all this wickedness that deserved and brought about the destruction, he found God's grace. We find that today God's grace is personal to each and every one of you. No matter how unpleased he is with this wicked world, you can find grace in the eyes of the Lord. We find that verse 5 that I read there, he really goes right back to where he had started when he closed out the last chapter. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah and his three sons. We find that as we read on down, we find God's indictment again of man's sinfulness. His judgment to destroy them in the earth was filled with their sin. But I want you to look down in verse 14 because we don't have time to look at all those verses. He says, make thee an ark. And he goes on to describe how that ark is to be made. Though man the wickedness and all of the sin would be destroyed by God's grace. He was instructing his own that was walking with him how he was going to be saved from the midst of all of this. Just as this ark was the place of refuge that God gave Noah and his family. He's just assuredly given us the ark of safety in Jesus Christ today. It doesn't matter how much wickedness is around us. It doesn't matter how much is destruction. We can find grace in the eyes of God, and he will be our ark of safety in Jesus Christ. You see, verse 17 is the first time that God tells us how He's going to bring about this destruction. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, where it is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. God reveals how he's going to destroy total destruction of sin in this world. There are many parallels here, folks. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day as well. But what we want to see right here is, is God passing judgment on the sin, on the wickedness, but at the same time showing his grace to his people, to those that will walk with him. You can pick up in, in chapter 6, verse 18 here, and you can read right down through chapter uh, 7, verse 5. You can read about God's promise to Noah. His specific instructions, requirements of what Noah would need to do, but God was going to protect him. God was going to protect his family. Do you know what it says there? Chapter 7, verse 5, And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. That's all. That's all Noah had to do was trust God and do what he said. Just trust God. You see, the flood was revealed. Verses 16 to 24, chapter 7, that flood is realized. We have the description of the worldwide flood that comes. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, we find the flood receding. And then in chapter 8, verses 15 to 22, Noah and his family and all those living creatures that he had taken on to the ark with him, they're sent forth upon the earth on the other side of the flood. You know what the very first act is recorded there? <laughs> they build an altar for the Lord. <laughs> Verse 20 of chapter 8, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
I find that amazing. What was the first thing we saw that after man was expelled from the garden, what was the first thing that we found? An altar and God being offered offerings. <laughs> the first thing we find, the first act of man beyond the flood is an altar being built to God. Offerings being made to God for who he is, for his goodness. God was pleased and God promises them here that he's never going to smite every living creature like that again. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 29, in the new world, God has blessed Noah and his family. And again, gives them the command that he started with Adam and Eve to be faithful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. God says, I'm going to give you another chance, mankind. I'm going to give you another chance. Yes. I mean, you got it so bad that you literally broke my heart, and I've, and I've had to destroy all this sin, but there's one that was walking with God that found grace in his eyes. And God goes on to establish his great covenant with Noah to place that bow in the sky that we can even see today to remind us of God's promise to mankind when we look there. Note this in closing. Man, man's sin brings God's judgment. God's judgment. God's judgment is something that man's sin brings God's judgment, which is total destruction. Sin will be destroyed. There is, there is nothing else. But God's grace brings man's salvation and unparalleled life. So on the one hand, sin will bring judgment and it brings death. On the other hand, grace, grace will bring forgiveness. It'll bring you life that will last for all of eternity. You see, by faith, man obeys God. By promise, God always delivers man. Always. God's judgments, we don't need to fear them, but we need to heed them. And we need to recognize that sin is no light thing. We could look at many, many passages that tells us to come out from amongst them and to be separate. I know sometimes it gets hard. How do we let our light shine and how do we win them to the Lord and all these things and yet be separate from them? Folks, you don't have to be a part of their lives and what they're doing and the things that, that they are doing that's wrong in order to win them to Christ. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. You need to be a light. You need to be a witness. They need to be able to see Christ in you in this world. We'll look at a couple of other things not next week, in a couple of weeks, three weeks, I guess. <laughs> we come back from Easter. But I want to just remind you this morning, God's judgment is real. If you're here this morning and if you're still walking around in your sinful condition, I make no apologies for saying you need to heed the warning. God's Spirit will not always strive with man just as it did not before the flood. It does not now. And unless the Spirit draws, no man cometh. You know, there's, there's nobody, unless the Father through His Spirit draws you, to Jesus Christ, you'll not come. Today, it's not God's will for any to perish. Righteous judgment must bring punitive judgment against sin. But God's grace, God's love, God's compassion for you, He wants to give you forgiveness for your sin. He wants to give you life. He'll do that today, but nobody else can do it, just as God's grace is always personal. It is only you personally that can accept or reject it. Christians, I know it's tough sometimes. I know it can seem like an awful wicked world around us. I know sometimes you may feel alone and you may feel like that, you know, that, boy, you just need something. You need somebody. But I want to let you know that even if you're down <laughs> to the last one standing, when you got God with you, you're the only one that's going to stand. 
I mean, Noah was the last one standing. There was nobody else who would have thought that this man, I mean, they all thought he was a nutter. <laughs> Preaching about water coming out of the sky? <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? Building a big boat ship out here in the middle of dry land? He's really gone off the deep end. He was the only one standing with God. Doesn't really matter how it looks to the world. <laughs> Doesn't matter that nobody else understands. What matters is that you're walking with God amidst it all. Because when you're standing with him, you're the one that's going to be standing in the end. Father, I thank you this morning. Lord, there's so, so, so much more that could be said about the flood and this judgment that you brought upon the earth. But Lord, our desire today is just to see this foundation that you're laying for us here. Lord, that will underlie the foundation of your judgment right throughout eternity. Father, I pray that you'd help us today just to remember, to realize, Lord, sin must be judged. There is no question about it. It is destructive. It will destroy. And if left unchecked, there would be nothing left. It can only bring death. But you want to give life. So therefore, that sin must be abolished. It must be done away with. And we've seen some of the things as to how that will ultimately be. But the first step is that it must be abolished in our lives. That can only be done through Jesus Christ, through his blood, through his sacrifice. I pray today if there be one here that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, help them, Lord, to recognize, to realize they are a sinner. Lord, but they're a sinner that you want to save by your marvelous grace. You want to forgive them of their sin. They can have life, but they must either accept or reject your grace today. So, Lord, work in those hearts. And for every believer, Lord, I pray that you would encourage today and just reminding that, Lord, sometimes we think we're alone when, you know, we can just look around us even this morning. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got those around us that are standing with us. Noah literally was down to the end. <laughs> but Lord, when he was standing with you, when he was walking with you, in the end, he was the only one. He was the only one left standing. He was the only one that was saved. Sin destroys. You bring salvation. Help encourage today those that belong to you. Help draw those to you that need to be saved. We give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 